Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. Friends and family, it seems that this has been quite the event-filled week. Let's start with the fun, because some of the things that we're going to discuss are actually quite tragic. Last week, I talked to you about going to a pre-Oscar party in which I saw two of my favorite actors from my favorite show, Snowfall. I saw Damson Idris and Amin Joseph, and I wrote very beautiful words about them that reached them. Last week, while I was sitting at my desk editing the podcast, there is a knock at my door. I'm sitting there in my house dress. I have a shower cap on because I'm soaking my hair and conditioner and then the bonnet on top of that. I look a hot ass mess. But there's a knock at the door. I'm thinking I'm not expecting company and I live in a pretty secure building. So it is a delivery man and he says I have to sign because there's alcohol. And I'm like, who is sending me alcohol? As it would turn out, it was red wine and chocolate from Snowfall's gents, Amin Joseph and Damson Idris. Now, when I made the post about them a couple weeks ago, Amin Joseph was in my comments section and he tagged Damson and he says, we should send sis some wine. And I just thought he was talking ish. I didn't think nothing about it. We shared a nice moment and I did it out of the goodness of my heart, but They sent me wine and chocolates. It was absolutely a gorgeous gesture. It put a gigantic smile on my face and it made me feel really good. And I just really felt appreciated. A gigantic love fest to the gentlemen of Snowfall. I love Ankh. I love Franklin Saint. I follow Damson Idris on Instagram. He's been in LA like a lot. So I take that as a sign that shooting is going well. And I cannot wait for season four. A snowfall. In a somewhat related note, okay, kind of not. I'm trying to tie it together and it's not really working. We're going to talk about Snoop going on Red Table Talk. Snoop spoke crazy about Gail because of a question or a follow up question that Gail asked in an interview with Lisa Leslie about Kobe Bryant's legacy. Snoop was very upset. He used some choice words to express his anger at Gail. He dropped a B-bomb, which I thought was excessive and, and went far too far. He threatened her. She got death threats. She had to hire security. And then he came back later and said that he talked to his mother. His mother told him he went too far. And so he made a video apologizing which I think is the least that you could do when you fuck up. Last week, I spoke about my mother and she would say to me when I did stupid things that were obviously stupid, she would say, don't be sorry, just don't do it. That was my advice to Snoop. And then I also said, he has apologized. Let's see if there's changed behavior. So he went on Red Table Talk and he spoke to Jada and Grammy and Willow. Willow was present. All she really said Literally, all she really said was, yeah. And I try not to be too hard on young Willow because she is young. She has not had a lot of life experience. None of the three women are journalists. They talk to different people about different issues. And I enjoy the show. But watching the show and watching people like Snoop and before him, T.I., 
come on the show and use, not utilize, but use the platform that Jada and the women of her family have built with an audience, definitely mostly women, I would guess mostly black women. They bring these gentlemen on and they offer a sympathetic ear and they nod and they listen and the men do their best to apologize and explain and spin. And T.I. uses a lot of big words, but he's not quite as charming or even as articulate as Snoop, who's been in the game a little bit longer. Watching Snoop essentially manipulate the Red Table Talk platform and then watching Jada and Gammy and Willow nod and agree and empathize and and basically make what he said more palatable to the women that were offended by the way he spoke to and of Gail. Like you absolved him by being a black woman who was willing to hear him out. And after I watched that interview, I was like, oh, I need to stop doing that shit too. Because there have been plenty of times where a guy has messed up and and I speak as a friend because there's somebody that I care about. There's sometimes people that, that I know really well who have been good people to me, have not been good people to others. And, and using this vast platform that I have to speak of their good when they've clearly demonstrated their bad, haven't really apologized, or maybe they've said it, but they haven't changed their actions. But I have been guilty of absolving men who did not earn absolution. And watching Snoop on Red Table Talk, I was like, oh, yeah, I got to stop doing that shit. Because Snoop went on Red Table Talk and, you know, he said he was sorry. And he said that, you know, his mother reached out to him and he said he did too much with Gail. And I was kind of just thinking, so... So, like, for the last, like, 20, 25 years, because Doggy Style came out when I was, like, a sophomore in high school. So, we're talking about, like, 14 to 40, over 25 years ago. Like, your brand has been misogyny, bitches and hoes and pimps and misogyny. Like, Snoop spent a good chunk of his career dressed as a pimp with a blowout hanging out with pimps doing his best Goldie impression. Your mama didn't have no issue with the misogyny all that time. But like now, like Gail is the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, Okay. Snoop didn't just talk about Gail. Jada asked him about the misogyny in his music and whether he was still going to say bitches and hoes. And he was like, you know, I stopped for a while, but, you know, it's just in the culture. And I do concerts and people have this expectation of my music. And so I just can't stop. If freaky ass Prince can become a Jehovah's Witness and switch up his lyrics to be in honor of his God, be in service to his God, I don't understand why Snoop can't substitute another word for bitch or hoe. If you don't want to be a misogynist, if you don't want to spread misogyny, you could stop. If you put the financial gain before the respect for women, You're just a through and through fucking misogynist. Don't try to sugarcoat it and clean it up and get on red table and be like, oh, that's not what I meant. And it bothered me that like he said that and and no one at the table pushed back. Not journalists. 
I get it. There are three women sitting around a table. But for all the people who got mad at Gail for that follow-up question for Lisa Leslie, I get it. Gail King is a true and true journalist. She's going to ask the question. They might not like how she asked. They might not like what she's insinuating. But a good journalist asks the hard questions. And watching Red Table Talk, it reminded me of the void in current journalism. It used to be if somebody got themselves into some deep shit, you'd go to Oprah or you'd go to Barbara Walters. Oprah don't do interviews like that anymore. I haven't seen a Barbara Walters interview in forever and a day. There's no one who folks can go sit down with to ask the hard questions. Maybe Robin Roberts. She did Nate Parker when he was in the hot seat. She's done some other folks. Michael Strahan does it too sometimes. But that's just not the same. GMA is in the morning. You can only ask with so much salacious stuff while people are, you know, eating their eggs and pouring their cereal. I've done GMA like nine times and they're always like, just be mindful. It's morning television. I'd be on my P's and Q's trying not to say ratchet things in that respectable place. Another thing, Jada didn't ask Snoop about Bill Cosby. When Snoop goes on his rant about Gail, at some point in it, he says free Bill Cosby starts referring to to Bill Cosby as Uncle Bill. Bill Cosby, who is currently serving time for sexual assault, found guilty. You want a rapist free? You really give not two shits at all about women. But like I said last week, Snoop apologized. He accepted wrongdoing. I respected that he got on the same platform that he acted an ass on and that he tried to clean himself up afterward. He said that his actions were wrong, that he he knew better. He wasn't raised like that. He's going to act better. Okay. And I said about him the way I say about everybody else who apologizes. Show me. Show me with your actions that you are going to do better, walk better, live better. Less than a week after Red Table Talk, Oprah is in the middle of her 2020 vision tour. She falls on stage and Snoop gets on social media and clowns it. Was like, oh, that must have been a gust of Michael Jackson or, or Kobe Bryant knocking her over. One, Oprah never said shit about Kobe Bryant. She didn't. Never. Gail is the one that did the Kobe Bryant interview. And although Gail and Oprah are close friends, they're not the same person. Gail is not responsible for what comes out of Oprah's mouth. Oprah is not responsible for what comes out of Gail's mouth. And because this must need to be pointed out again, Oprah has never made a Michael Jackson documentary. Oprah Winfrey had a talk show for 25 years. Before that, she was a working journalist as a morning news host. She has practiced journalism for the better part of over 40 years. She interviewed men who had participated in a documentary where they alleged Michael Jackson abused them. A journalist asked questions. You're literally upset that a woman did her damn job by asking questions. And because you're mad that this woman did her damn job, you're making fun of her for falling at 65, 66 years old. Oprah's a senior. She sprained something. She posted a picture on the internet the next day. She got her foot propped up and got some brace on. An old person falling is not funny. 
And it's not something to be clowned just because you don't want them to ask questions about rape or you don't want them to probe into men who accuse a man who is on camera at 30 something years old talking about he slept in the bed with boys. Folks want to be like Michael Jackson's not a rapist. I found the documentary compelling. People came out after the documentary pointed out holes in the boys' stories. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. We'll never know at this point. We do know, because grown-ass Michael Jackson in that childlike voice, despite being in his mid-30s, was on camera talking about, yeah, I like to sleep in the bed with boys. That shit ain't right. Ain't no album good enough to make that shit okay. Thriller, amazing album. Don't make sleeping in the bed with boys as a grown-ass man okay. Not trying to destroy your, your childhood. Not trying to participate in Michael Jackson's slander. I'm just telling you what was on video and what don't make no goddamn sense. We talked about Kobe. Let's talk a little more. Kobe's memorial, which seemed like it took a very long time to pull together, it happened last week, and it opened with Beyonce, which I was like, oh, we're going straight A-list. Okay. She sang Halo. She sounded beautiful. She had her wind machine. She looked beautiful. I cried. I've cried so much for Kobe Bryant. I had no idea that I felt so strongly about Kobe Bryant. You couldn't have told me at the beginning of this year, like, oh, how do you feel about Kobe Bryant? I would be like, oh, he's all right. I have cried and cried and cried. For Kobe, for Gigi, for his wife, Vanessa, cried. I cried all through that memorial service. Cried after Halo. Cried when Jimmy Kimmel got on the stage to host and was hoarse as I don't know what, like he'd been crying all day. Cried for Jimmy Kimmel. I do feel strongly about Jimmy Kimmel. There's something about him that gives me Jack Pearson vibes. The dad from This Is Us. I love me some Jimmy Kimmel. I don't know where that comes from. But Jimmy got up there, he cried. And then everybody else that got up there, they cried. Vanessa Bryant, now she got up there to do the eulogy for her deceased daughter and husband. And she managed not to fall out, which I was just like, man, this lady got a strength I don't even understand. Ain't ain't enough sedatives in the world for me to get up and eulogize my child and my husband. And I respected her so much because the reason this memorial was such a gigantic deal that it had to be in the Staples Center was because of Kobe Bryant. Gigi is his daughter. Gigi passed with him. And out of due respect for Kobe Bryant and the way that he loved his children, we acknowledge Gigi. And it's the right thing to do. So I'm not making any complaints about it. But... It very easily could have been a service just about Kobe Bryant because he is the celebrity athlete. He is the public figure. But what Vanessa did with this memorial service and including Gigi's idols and especially with that eulogy that she did for her daughter, she read it had to be eight pages. Six. It was a lot of pages. And no complaints about the timing. The mother of a deceased child, she could have stood up there for two hours and read. And I would just been like, well, what you going to do? But she meticulously detailed her daughter's life. And she 
painted a picture of who her daughter was with her own little personality and then what her daughter meant to her and to Kobe. And she made sure that the weight of that loss, of that life, of that young girl was felt. Yes, she was Kobe Bryant's daughter, but she was also a young girl, an individual worthy of being mourned and celebrated in her own right. Not because she was related to, not because she's someone's daughter, because she's some affiliation with others, but because she was here. I don't know much about Vanessa Bryant. When she got up to the to the podium to speak, sans Usher, I was like, do white people not use ushers? Like, they exist for a reason. All those people up on that stage were, like, on the verge of a meltdown. And I was like, so no one's going to offer them a Kleenex or a fan or just they're going to just stand close by in case there's a falling out or just the energy of moral support. Someone standing near you, standing by you, standing with you. We don't, y'all don't do ushers, non, non-Wakandans? Y'all not going to get an usher for Jimmy? Michael Jordan helped Vanessa down off the stage, which people were like, that's Jordan's best assist. I like that. That was a nice thing. I like that. But I was like, y'all couldn't have nobody in an official capacity to make sure folks is all right up there. Mrs. Bryant went on to eulogize her husband. We learned facts about Kobe Bryant that no one even had a clue to ask. She was like, yeah, Kobe was so romantic. He learned to play Beethoven in like a week just to be romantic. She's like, I look forward to Valentine's Day because he was so over the top. He bought me the dress from the notebook. He did what? Apparently in the off season, Kobe Bryant was sitting around watching Steel Magnolias. I was like, who were you? In my favorite TV show of all time, when Stringer Bell is killed, Jimmy McNulty, the officer who has been chasing him, goes to his apartment and he thought Stringer Bell was just like some hood drug dealer. But he goes to this apartment and it's laid out with bright natural light and all of these books. And Jimmy just looks around and he was like, who was I chasing? Who was Kobe Bryant? I had no idea. Vanessa started talking about her husband and I was like, what? He did all that? I wrote about her her eulogy. It's going to call it a speech, but it's a eulogy. I wrote about her eulogy that... As a widow, she did an amazing job. She did the job that no woman should really have to do, but she did it well nonetheless. Like the job of of Jackie Kennedy creating the mythology of Camelot after JFK was killed, assassinated. And the way that Coretta Scott King made sure that her husband had a proper memorial not just a memorial service, but a memorial in Atlanta that he was not forgotten, that his history was not passed over, that he was not relegated to the sidelines, that his memory persisted. She she made sure of that. She took care of, of his legacy. And Vanessa Bryant did the same for Kobe Bryant at that memorial service. It's a really good service. Shaq. Did a great job. I didn't know Shaq was funny. And I said that on Facebook. We had a thread going on Facebook about the memorial service. And I was like, I had no idea Shaq was funny. And people were like, oh my God, you should absolutely watch Shaq on, I don't know what channel it is, but whatever channel Shaq talks about basketball. They were like, oh my God, Shaq is hilarious. Like he is a good time. 
I had no idea Shaq was funny. Michael Jordan, that man cried and cried and cried. It was so sad. He was talking about Kobe Bryant was his annoying little brother and was always hitting him up in the middle of the night with a whole bunch of damn questions. But I did get the sense that he really, really loved him. And when Michael Jordan referenced being a crying meme, I was like, oh, he's aware. Much needed levity. Because that was the sad, sad service. Some folks were unhappy with the fact that uh, I think Shaq acknowledged Kobe Bryant's parents or may have acknowledged Kobe as a son. Vanessa did not acknowledge them. Some people felt a way about that. And I need to remind them that throughout Kobe Bryant's very, very visible, high-profile career, somewhere around the time that he married Vanessa, his wife of 20 years, the mother of his four children, he had a very public falling out with his parents who did not want him to marry, certainly did not want him to marry without a prenup. They had a very public spat that lasted for a very long time. Later, they reconciled. And then there was another falling out somewhere around 2015 when Kobe's version of events, and I hope that I get this accurate, he says that his parents wanted him to buy them a house. And he offered them a certain amount of money for the house. And they said it was not enough. His parents, in their quest for money, decided to sell some of Kobe Bryant's memorabilia. He sued his parents. They issued an apology, but the relationship had been very damaged. It is said that before he passed away, he had reconciled to some degree, at least with his father. No word of reconciliation with his mother. So, they had a tumultuous relationship, I think it would be fair to say. Vanessa, again, did not mention his parents at the memorial service. No word on what actually happened at the funeral service, which is for the actual family and real friends. The public service was really for the fans, so we could have some healing. Much needed, much, much needed. Well, folks felt Vanessa was very wrong, to which I was like, that woman is is mourning the loss of her husband and her child in the same day. She can't really do anything wrong right now. And if her husband didn't have a relationship with his family, which I'm sure was very painful for him, she had bared witness to their ups and downs over the 20 years that she was with Kobe. He may not have wanted them acknowledged. And in honoring her husband's memory, it'd be kind of messed up to start honoring people that he didn't want acknowledged. I would like to believe that if he wanted them acknowledged, she would have acknowledged them. I'll also say this. When Vanessa met Kobe, she was a 17-year-old girl with, with not a lot of power. She's a young girl. She hadn't been in the world. Over the course of 20 years and four children later... She became very powerful. Like as his wife, his widow, she controls most of Bryant's assets in the wake of his untimely demise. If nothing else, she controlled that memorial service. 
She said who was in. She said who was out. She said who sat where. Because Mr. and Mrs. Bryant were on the front row, but they were not near Vanessa, her oldest daughter. I don't know if the youngest children were there. I imagine they were, but there were interesting rules on who could be shown and who could not be shown. There's a big question about whether LeBron was present because he was never shown on camera. But I did hear that he was there. He just he just didn't want to be on camera for that occasion, which I completely understand. The idea that Vanessa should have taken time out of her grief to acknowledge two people, even if they're Kobe's parents, who didn't want to be bothered with her or her husband when he was alive, that's a lot. I guess like I come from a family of, of folks who will not speak for a good 20 years. There's some rifts that just never will be mended. When folks do you dirty, death doesn't absolve that. It just doesn't. And sometimes it magnifies it. I do hope if there's a rift, there may actually be nothing. People make all these sort of speculations that, oh, well, they didn't speak. Vanessa didn't mention them. So it must be. It could be nothing. It could be they were like, you know what? We not spotlight people. We don't really want to be mentioned. Like everybody knows there's back and forth. We don't want to bring it up. So just go on and do what you do and we'll be here as moral support. They could all left and, and went to Red Lobster afterward. Who knows? I just know that both sides of my family got some characters. And I couldn't sit here and come out my face in a right frame of mind. And talk about somebody else's family being fucked up when we got our own issues. We need to discuss Love is Blind, this new dating show phenomenon on Netflix. We talked about this for a little bit last week. We want to talk about different aspects of the show. The final episode had not aired when I taped this show last week. In case you missed it, it's... People who have never met getting engaged and then possibly married. The idea is that looks are not everything and that you can find your match just based on good old-fashioned communication. So the breakout stars of the show are a couple, Lauren, a black girl, and Cameron, a non-Wakandan white man. He's really cute. They went through the process that I just described. They met in in these pods. After, I want to say, like three or four days, Cameron proposed. Lauren accepted. They met. They seemed to have a little tension about, like, does this interracial thing kind of work? More so from Lauren's end than Cameron's. But then they quickly got over that. Like, it was pretty clear that they were just trying to play up that drama for, like, TV Because they were pretty compatible and got along on like all cylinders. As crazy as it sounds, because this experiment is kind of crazy, they actually work. It's a crazy concept. Like you met in three days and then you got engaged. Huh? But they really do strike me as two people who just happened to meet in an unconventional way. They seem very compatible and in sync and on the same wavelength. Like it works somehow weirdly but it does like I don't question it like when I see them together I'm like oh how cute are they they're just adorable and this show was taped in 2018 and now it's 2020 and they're still rocking so good for you good for black girl love the other most talked about couple on the show 
was Carlton and Diamond. Black man, black woman. Black man confesses after engagement to woman that he is attracted to hearts, i.e. he's bisexual. Woman has questions, does not flip, tries to be understanding. Man goes full unhinged. Woman then flips back in return. Storms off. Engagement over. They both leave. So for like 18 months, they're living their best lives and on their merry way. Apparently, Carlton had apologized for the way that he behaved, which was truly, truly awful. Like he treated that woman terribly, terribly. But now that the show has aired and it's a huge, huge show, like everyone, their mother is watching. They've been doing interviews and people have reached out to them both. At one point, they had made peace with with their fallout and they had, they didn't say they were friends, but they had both taken accountability for how they mishandled the conversation about Carlton's bisexuality. Diamond has somehow become the face of of new phenomenon, to me at least. I had never heard this term before, maybe like a week ago, of biphobia. Essentially, it's a term aimed at heterosexual women who don't wish to date bisexual men. And the idea is that the reason that heterosexual women don't want to date bisexual men is rooted in ignorance, fear, insecurity. So the three top reasons that have been asserted are that a heterosexual woman believes that a bisexual man cannot be faithful to her because he's interested in both men and women, that you don't really believe that a man can be bisexual. You think that he's just putting on a front and that he's really gay, that he's using a woman as a beard, or that bisexual men are disease-ridden and if having sexual encounters with one will leave you with their diseases. And I was like, it can't just be as simple as a heterosexual woman don't want to have sex with a man who also has sex with men. I was told that that is actually about, what's the word they like to use? Implicit bias that the act of same-sex sex between men is deviant. And that's why you have an issue with your man having sex with another man. Or you believe that gay sex makes a man less masculine. And so that's also part of your implicit bias. And it's a sign that you are biphobic. And I was like, I don't understand why this is a phobia as opposed to a preference. I don't date dudes under, in general, six feet. That's my preference. I don't like to date men with children. I prefer not to date men who've never been married. That's not to say I date married men. I prefer divorced men, not separated, like full-fledged, like divorced. Your papers are signed and notarized. And if I need to see them, I, you can produce them on demand. That's my preference. 
That's only because people who have been married and divorced have an entirely different outlook on life than people who've never been married. It's If you need me to explain it one day, I will. But the dating game is entirely different once you've been married. A large part of what passes for modern dating is women jumping through hoops to prove that they are worthy of marriage and men dangling the idea of commitment, marriage, validation to women as a way to get them to behave in the way the men want. It's some sick shit, but you can only see it when you're not playing the game anymore. That said, I don't understand why, like, because I'm a heterosexual woman who prefers other heterosexuals, that makes me biphobic. I also don't appreciate being told who I should be dating or having the sex with. It's my vagina. It's my body. It's my time spent. I don't understand why I can't choose who to spend it with without having some label applied to me. I wrote about this and it was a vigorous discussion, as you can imagine. My whole point was, I'm really tired of people telling me as a woman what I need to do and not to do, especially when it comes to dating relationships and sex. Like I'm a grown ass woman. If I want to have sex with 10 people in one day, that's my business. It's my vagina. I do what I want with it. If I don't want to date, if I don't want to have sex, if I want to be celibate, if I want to be done with men forever, that's my choice. It's my body. I don't understand why anyone has any commentary for it. But it's just like I feel like women are constantly, constantly being told what they should be doing. Everything from who should be served the dinner they just cooked first. Do you serve your man? Do you serve your kids? Should the plate be square? Should it be round? Should it be paper? Should it be ceramic? Like the stupidest of conversations. But people are always telling women that like they need to be doing something. They need to be pleasing someone. They need to be doing this, doing that. And I'm just, I'm just, the biphobic thing has just pushed me over the edge. How dare you tell me that I need to be having sex with men who also have sex with men? I don't want to. And then people who keep trying to make this point about like, you're not recognizing like your implicit bias. You're not recognizing your phobia. You're not recognizing your blah, blah, blah. I just want to like kindly point out to you, if you're trying to convince people to see your train of thought, stop calling them names. Because immediately, if you start telling people you're biphobic, you're homophobic, you're transphobic, all they hear, you're calling me a goddamn bigot. So yes, I'm going to be defensive. I'm going to be like, absolutely not. I'm not homophobic. Absolutely not. I'm not biphobic. Absolutely not. I'm not transphobic. And look, I'm trying my best to be open-minded, to not just tolerate, to, but to accept, to celebrate even. I believe we are all God's children. I want us all to be happy. If you want to change your sex or you feel you were born the wrong sex, however you want to express your sexuality, whoever you want to have sex with, as long as everyone is consenting and of age, have at it. What you do in your bedroom or wherever you like to do your sexual business is not mine. I certainly don't want you commenting on how I do, but it's just real weird to me that like, heterosexual folk, particularly women, 
it's been said to us over and over. You got to let people be. You got to let people be. You got to make room for other people because it's exclusionary and accept, accept, allow, love. Great. Stay out of people's bedrooms. Great. A lot of folks did that. A lot of folks fell in line. But then suddenly, I feel a lot of folks are trying to be in my bedroom right now. I'm not okay with that. Telling me I need to have sex with bisexual men? This is where I draw the line. You can't tell me who to have sex with. You can't tell me who to date. And you certainly can't label it some kind of phobic because I don't want to do what you think I should be doing. It's not okay. I mean, folks want to make up terms. If I start saying crazy shit like heterophobia, you can be like, Demetria, you're doing the most. You sounding like white folks talking about reverse oppression. But I'm like, is this how they feel? I think reverse racism and reverse oppression and all of that, I feel like it's white folks deflecting. But I also feel like if this is the energy they've been feeling, you might have to acknowledge that shit. I don't want to have to go there with it. Please. Don't make me go there. Last but not least, we need to talk about Jackie Lacey. She is the Los Angeles District Attorney. She is a black woman. Until yesterday, I never heard her name. She's not on my radar. I'm not very familiar with local politics as I am a new transplant. I haven't even been here a year yet. But Lacey, Mrs. Lacey, has not had, actually, encounters with Black Lives Matter. I did a little research on her. She got a trash-ass record. LA has, I believe, the highest number of police killings of civilians, about 500 on Lacey's watch. She doesn't even prosecute, even when the police are like, yeah, that's some bullshit, you probably need to prosecute. She still won't do it. Terrible track record with black folks. Let me pull up my notes, make sure I get these other things right. If you remember, there was a story about a guy who worked with, I want to say he was a huge donor with the Democratic Party. And two or three black men ended up dead after visiting his house. Drug overdoses. So the first one happens and sis doesn't do anything and the second one happens and sis again doesn't do anything and then when the third black man ends up dead then she's like oh okay well now you forced my hand i've also read i want to say this was the la times she aggressively pursues the death penalty and she has refused on multiple occasions to meet with black lives matter who want to hold her accountable for her terrible track record towards black folks. So she has refused to meet with them. She's ducked, she's dodged, she's made meetings, she's moved them, she's not shown up. Black Lives Matter protesters in LA were like, we've had enough of this shit. So they take it upon themselves a couple days ago to go to Lacey's private residence, her home, at 5.30 in the morning, about 30 people and stage a protest. So it starts with them on the sidewalk. They're sitting in chairs. I believe they were banging drums. They're making a whole bunch of noise as protesters tend to do. Three of the people from the group, including the head of Black Lives Matter LA, 
take it upon themselves to go up on Lacey's porch and ring the doorbell. They are greeted at the door by Mr. Lacey, who brandishes a gun, and on video, he's seen telling them to get off his property or he will shoot. I just like to point out that the video, the tape ain't even shaky. Nobody screams. He's not even really yelling all super aggressive. He's not waving the gun crazy. He's holding it. He's pointing it. But it really wasn't nearly as terrifying as, as it kind of sounds. Like, oh, he brandished a weapon. He had his gun out. He pointed it. He told people to move. And they didn't move. Then he closed the door and went back inside. Every major newspaper in the country covered the story of Mr. Lacey pulling out his gun on the Black Lives Matter people. I see this picture and I'm like, whose uncle is this pulling out a gun and why did he do it? So I go beyond the headlines and I read it and I'm like, so y'all thought showing up at an old black man's house, it could have been a young black man, just any black person, really. Y'all thought showing up at a black person's house at 530 in the morning and to be clear, sunrise isn't until like 6.15 in L.A. I get up before the sun most days. So it was still dark out. 30 folks decided to roll up on this man's house. And then three of them decided to go up on his porch and ring his doorbell. And let's be real clear. It's highly unlikely they rang the doorbell and then stood back with their hands folded and started singing Christmas carols to be as most non-threatening as possible. Y'all were protesting. Y'all went up on that man's porch. You rang his doorbell for sure. I'd probably guess you banged on the door. I'd probably guess you was loud talking, if not yelling, while you was on the porch. And he came to the door with his weapon. Drawn. I don't know what else you expected to happen, because that was the most likeliest shit ever. The three folks who went up on that porch, one of them is a well-known activist. She's also a professor. Black woman, obviously. She is the chair of the Department of Pan-African Studies at California State University, Los Angeles, and the co-founder of the Los Angeles chapter of Black Lives Matter. Her name is Melina Abdullah. She's widely respected as an activist in L.A., so no shade to her. And while I'm saying that, let me also say this. I deeply respect Black Lives Matter. I don't organize protests. I will occasionally show up at a protest that somebody else has meticulously organized and marketed. I may share information. I will show up on occasion, not always, but show up on occasion to add to numbers and to make my voice heard. I deeply respect the people that do the hard work of fighting for the human rights of black folk. Deeply respect. So my criticism is not of Black Lives Matter in general. My criticism is not of activists in general. What I am saying today is a criticism specifically of the strategy that was employed recently with the Los Angeles district attorney and the crazy ass idea to run up on her porch. Her husband is just that. He's not her spokesperson. He's not her representative. He is her husband. And you ran up on that man's house where he lived too with his wife inside. And in that moment, he got one job to protect his house and protect his family. Y'all tested that man in a way that nobody should be tested at their home. 
folks keep trying to justify it and they say, well, she wasn't responding and, and she needs to be held accountable and she wasn't taking meetings and she wasn't responsive and they need to reach her. So drastic actions had to be taken. I feel you. She's dead ass wrong. She should respond to her consist. She should respond to her constituency. She absolutely should be accountable. Y'all still can't run up on her damn house like that. People say, oh, it's been done before. This is a method that has been used before. Okay. Y'all keep trying that shit. Somebody gonna end up dead and it's gonna be their own damn fault. You can't run up on people's houses like that. Once again, talked about this on Facebook, talked about this on social media. I would implore you to go look at the responses. 95% of them are black folks saying, if you run up on my home, if you come on my porch and ring my doorbell at 530 in the goddamn morning, I'm going to greet you with my tool. I would suggest that you especially don't try that with nobody from Texas or Florida or Louisiana. Most of the deep south, them mofos believe in guns. They will shoot and ask questions later, if at all. They will hit you with some castle doctrine, some stand your ground, but they will shoot your ass for running up on their house. Ain't a lot of safe places for black folks in this world. I think that needs to be taken into consideration too. Even if you don't like this woman's policies, even if you don't like the way this woman has been DA, even if you think she's trash and the way she treats black folks, which from everything I've read, I agree with you about that. Black folks don't have many safe spaces. Your home is your safe haven. Somebody run up on your safe haven, you're going to get some extra. So when I say to people, they'll be like, oh, you're talking about respectability politics and protest. You're trying to be civil and protest. You're trying to be polite and protest. Protest is ugly. Protest is messy. Sometimes you have to be disruptive. In most cases, I will agree with you. I think it's completely distasteful to go to someone's neighborhood and protest at their home. I think that actually does cross the boundary with the sidewalk and the streets, public space. It is what it is. I don't like it. I'm not going to call you wrong for doing it. You want to talk about being disruptive. You want to talk about being messy. Stay on the sidewalk. Stay on the street. That's messy enough. Coming up on somebody's private property. That situation. The DA's husband could have been so much uglier. The headlines where he brandished weapon, he pulls weapon, it could have been shot to dead. And a lot of folks would have understood, wouldn't have been no sympathy. Shouldn't have had her ass up on that man's porch. I'm glad it didn't escalate to that. Other people were like, he should have called the police. We're going to go back to the statistic I just mentioned about how the Los Angeles Police Department has the most civilian deaths at the hands of officers. They have the most in the country. It's pissed off. As husband Lacey was, it was better for him to come out and brandish a weapon that he didn't use than to call the police, the LAPD, on Black Lives Matter protesters. Imagine how that shit would have gone. People talk about all these white folks who get upset, all these Karens upset because their raisin supply is low. They call the police on black people for a bunch of dumb shit. And everybody writes all these think pieces and gets all up on social media and talks about calling the police on black people is like weaponizing the police force. Calling the police on black people is putting black people's lives in danger. And then suddenly today, everyone's like, well, he should have called the police if he was scared. Really? That's a good idea? Calling the police on Black Lives Matter protesters? 
Sir did them folks a favor waving his own gun, and they still ain't have enough good sense to get off his porch. That man came out, told them to get off his porch, closed the door, and they still standing up there. I'm glad it didn't escalate further. I don't want to see nobody die. I really don't. But that wasn't a good use of judgment. It really was not. And the protesters were all over the news all day. We're traumatized, but the fight has to go on. Yeah, you should be traumatized. I would be too if somebody put a gun in my face. Please let that be a lesson to you. Don't be running up on people's damn houses. It's not about respectability. It's about you not waking up dead the next day. So I think that's everything. If in between episodes you need a little ratchet and respectable in your life, please follow me on social media, Twitter, not so much, but Instagram, Facebook, at Demetria L. Lucas, two L's, please note. You can also subscribe to the podcast. Okay, talk soon. Bye.